Good evening and welcome to a very special City Club of Cleveland Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive of the City Club and a proud member. And tonight we are at the Parma Snow Branch of the Cuyahoga County Public Library. I'm honored to introduce our speaker today, the former ambassador to the United Nations and author of The Education of an Idealist, Samantha Power. At the City Club, we often say that the right conversation at the right time can change the course of history. There's no place this is truer than in foreign policy, and more specifically in America's often unflinching commitment to the spread of democracy. One decision to invade a country or not invade a country, to remove American troops prematurely or to not send them at all, can actually change the course of history, leaving a trail of consequences, both good and bad, that reverberate for years to today. And our speaker today has had a front seat of many of these career-defining and history-making moments. She'll share them with us today. An Irish immigrant, Ms. Power began her career as a journalist reporting from countries including Bosnia, East Timor, Rwanda, and Sudan. This work led her to write the book, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, about why American leaders who vow to never again allow genocides also repeatedly fail to halt them. The book won both the Pulitzer Prize and the Annisfield Wolf Book Award in nonfiction in 2003. She then worked as a foreign policy advisor to Senator Barack Obama, and then as a human rights advisor to President Obama before ultimately becoming his second United Nations ambassador. This professional journey also led her on a personal journey, learning to balance her own uncompromising idealistic advocacy of justice and human rights at all costs with realism, diplomacy, and policymaking. It's this journey she describes in her memoir, The Education of an Idealist. Today, she's the Anna Lind Professor of the Practice of Global Leadership and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and the William D. Zabel Professor of Practice in Human Rights at Harvard Law School. Ms. Power has been named by Time as one of the world's 100 most influential people and by foreign policy as one of their top 100 global thinkers. Ambassador Power will be in conversation with Cleveland's own Pulitzer Prize winning writer, Connie Schultz. Her many other awards include the Scripps Howard National Journalism Award, the National Headliners Award, the James Batten Medal, and the Robert F. Kennedy Award for Social Justice Reporting. She's a great friend of the City Club, a champion of journalistic integrity, and is currently the professional in residence in the College of Communication and School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Kent State University. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County Public Library, please join me in welcoming Samantha Power and Connie Schultz. Good evening, everyone. Look at this packed house. You could be anywhere. You could be watching the debates. <laughs> or baseball. Yeah, and instead you're here. I'm so impressed. Samantha, before we start talking, you, would you read a passage from your book, please? I'd be happy to, and Connie, thank you so much uh, for doing this. You could be anywhere, um, tweeting up a firestorm, uh, for example. <laughs> I Finishing your much-awaited novel. I wouldn't um, be anywhere but here tonight, no, as you know. Thank you, thank you. Um, and another shout-out for Max Books, Max Bax, which sells books, um, and uh, independent bookstores everywhere, uh, without which we really would see the demise of civilization. Um, so I'm reading, going to read a passage, and maybe I'll just set it up uh, for a minute. So the, the book that I've written is not, um, I suppose, a traditional political memoir. Connie would be the best judge, perhaps, of that. But um, it's one that seeks to really open up um, sort of the insides of the protagonist of the book, who is me, for rightly or wrongly. Um, and I start in a Dublin pub where I lived um, in Ireland before I immigrated to this country at the age of nine, not so far away, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I tell, yes met like three Pirates fans yeah, in the very short time I've been here, which I'm not you're sure. You're not going to meet a lot of Pittsburgh fans. In I, I, but weirdly, <laughs> I'm just I, warning you. the luck of the draw, I don't know what's going on. Um, <laughs> but uh, so moved to Pittsburgh, immigrated there, then went to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I tell the story of some of the racial dynamics uh, that I encountered down there. My class was the first class that was uh, majority African-American because of busing, no less. Something back in the news unexpectedly. 
Um, and then not long after college, I went and became a journalist, a war correspondent in the Balkans. And when I came back and went to law school, I wrote a paper for a class in law school, which then eventually morphed into a longer paper, and then ultimately, after five years, a book. And I mention that because one of the readers of the book was a first-term senator, uh, newly elected senator, Barack Obama. And so he read the book. He reached out to me. I then was very taken by him. He said that he was not planning on running for president immediately because that would be very presumptuous. Um, <laughs> he would, within a matter of months, I think, or at least a year, change his mind. But before I knew that, I went and I worked in his Senate office, um, and then I worked on his political campaign when he did decide to run for president. And it is from there, after much ado, uh, that I'm going to read a passage. So. It's easy to forget that when he announced, while there was a lot of promise associated with that campaign, there was also significant skepticism because he had just arrived in the US Senate. And uh, even though he had opposed the war in Iraq and that looked like a distinguishing feature among the, w the, the pool of Democrats who were running at that time, uh, it was still a long shot campaign, it seemed. Um, and so the scene and the passage that I want to read comes from a chapter called Yes We Can which of course became a bit of a, uh, a theme of the campaign. Um, and the scene is uh, taken from about eight months before he wins the Iowa caucus. And that was really the, the turning point because people were skeptical that an African-American could become president. He goes in, he wins the caucus pretty handedly. Um, but this scene is from a very different time in the campaign when it was very chaotic and did not look like it was all that promising. So uh, this is from the spring of 2007. As I worked at my computer in Winthrop, Massachusetts, I received an email that was clearly not intended for me. Cass Sunstein, a University of Chicago law professor and an Obama campaign advisor had written, quote, Martha, isn't this campaign law group a disaster? As in worse than say anything, end quote, I had met this Cass once before at an academic conference. We had struck up a lively conversation, and I'd learned that like me, he was an avid squash player and Red Sox fan, but we had not kept in touch. Cass had seemed almost incurably cheerful during our brief interaction, so the sour tone of his email surprised me, but since it was addressed to Harvard Law School professor Martha Minow, I deleted the message and went about my day. I soon realized, though, that I was not the only accidental recipient of Cass's private lament. Neither Cass nor I were full-time or paid campaign advisors. We were academics who contributed policy ideas by telephone and email to candidate Obama's campaign and who spoke publicly on his behalf. Obama's core paid staff had assembled a working group comprised of legal scholars to inform the candidate's views about an assortment of pressing issues, including how to go about closing the Guantanamo Bay detention facility and how to reverse President Bush's licensing of torture. Obama and Cass had been colleagues at the University of Chicago where they both taught classes on constitutional law. With a possible Obama speech on the rule of law approaching, the group, this informal group, had produced nothing. In expressing his frustration to Martha Minow via email, Cass had mistakenly autofilled the entire senior staff of the Obama campaign. <laughs> his criticism of the law group caused wide offense. Daniel Gray, the immensely capable lawyer in charge of domestic policy, took it as an insult to her leadership and forwarded the email to me, saying, can you believe this asshole? A friend of hers converted part of Cass's email into a large poster and hung it on the wall at campaign headquarters. Danielle Gray, worse than say anything? Question mark. I felt for Cass. Like most mortals, I had suffered my own email mishaps. Not long before, I'd been set up on a blind date by Tom Keenan, a friend and fellow professor whom I'd come to know through his research on mass atrocities. The date had not gone well. I wrote to Tom with a rundown of all I didn't like about his friend, asking how he could have conceivably thought we might get along. I stressed that the incompatibilities were deep, and I signed off the email, quote, I think, as the old saying goes, you can only make them dress better, end quote. <laughs> 
Now, Connie, is that an old saying? Just out of curiosity, because even though I wrote this email, I haven't actually heard, I'm not sure that is an old saying, so I'm not sure that I even <laughs> needed to sow my I doom. I think you knew somehow deep inside you that someone said it one time somewhere. Somewhere. It, it was a it's a relatively wise thing to say, but I, it's I not a saying that's all that well known. But uh, in any event, so I wrote this somehow, and I signed off the email in this way. As soon as I hit send, I heard a ping in my inbox. It was the message I had just sent, freshly delivered as an incoming email. Within seconds of that first ping, I heard a second. I'd received a note from Tom, which simply read, you didn't. <laughs> I put my head in my hands, and I slowly typed, I did. <laughs> Tom and I were part of a listserv. Mm -mm, it gets much worse. Of thousands. <laughs> no, no, not done yet. Tom and I were part of a listserv of thousands of genocide survivors scholars and activists, and I'd accidentally sent the note savaging the blind date to the entire list. It's okay. <laughs> but years later, when I was serving as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, people who had received my email would still exuberantly quote my words back to me. You can only make them dress better. Anyway, the good news is, Number one, the campaign recovered, and we, these groups, law groups, formal and otherwise, all the groups, we got our acts together, and we figured out how to support the, uh, the great candidate that we got to work for. Um, the other good news is, because I had done something comparable to what Cass had done, maybe even worse, I reached out to him, and we are now, uh, I reached out to him to tell him not to flagellate himself, that everybody had done such a thing, or soon would, because of technology. Uh, and now I'm married to him, and we have two children. So, so it has a happy ending of sorts. Connie. That is a perfect beginning to this conversation because, well, for so many reasons, but one of the things that struck me in reading your book, and um, I read it before it came out, as you know, you had it sent to me as a proof copy, and I've read a lot of political memoirs. Um, this is not like your typical political memoir. Uh, it is so... I would say raw at times, particularly mm. when you talk about your roots and you talk about your mistakes. And I've looked at a lot of your interviews and I've looked at some of the reviews of it. I'm wondering, first of all, what do you make of the response to it? Have you been reading a lot of the reaction to it? Um, uh, no. <laughs> Be, I mean, insofar as I, this one especially, because it was so personal, I, I understand didn't understand that. I mean, I you didn't can make feel this book however you want to read it. That's the thing. You'll see people go after certain things in it, because there's so much in it. Yeah. If they love you, they're going to love so much of it. If they don't want you, they're going to ignore them. That's <laughs> on your shoulder. But I, I'm wondering yeah. how you came to decide right. to write it this way, as opposed to what we're, what we're used to seeing, particularly from people who've been involved in policy, and at such a high level as yourself. Well, thank you. for. Th I, so I don't read the reviews, um, because I did feel like, on one level, I was putting myself out in the world and not merely a book that I had written and so I yeah. just thought therein madness lies and you know it's hard enough to read the news to combine the news with reviews of oneself <laughs> it just seemed like I'm not sure that the day could get worse uh so <laughs> so uh so I've been pretty disciplined I cast the aforementioned cast um uh reads them all and and you know offers me summaries so I knew I know you know who to love forever and who to be mad at, and yeah. uh, and I have a general sense of of you know where people are weighing in. I mean, for the most part, um, criticisms tend to really be. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that the book itself is without criticism, but the but the there are people who are very critical of different moments in Obama's tenure, right? And I'm of course closely associated with a number of right. those moments, and so. Um, but to, your, to the core of your question, um, this was not the book that I set out to write by any means. I don't know exactly how I would have articulated my, I don't think I would have thought that much about my boundaries, but I just would have, ne A, I had never written in the first person before, in, you know, the Irish have a saying, this ac actually is a, a, a saying that I have heard, uh, uh, but which is some version of the Irish have trouble using the first person even in therapy. Um, and so, so for me to to overcome even that threshold, I knew I had to do that to write something that was lively, which was my objective, of course, as any writers would be. 
But I think what I began to realize as I just told the the traditional story, the story of, uh, you know, on one level, Samantha Power goes to Washington and activist becomes um, a bit of an insider and, and what is that transition like? I realized that I wanted people to root, not for me as such, for the ideals that I was championing. And so I wanted them to root for a more humane foreign policy and I wanted them to root for human consequences being more of a factor in decision making and in our public discourses, whether domestic human consequences of decisions or international. And I realized when I just picked up the story at the time where I thought most people would be most interested, which was when I met Obama, because I assumed that people are much more interested in him than they are in me, um, I'm not sure the readers were really caring that much about whether I was winning an argument or losing an argument because they, like like any fiction, and now you, again, you know more about that, this than me having uh, written fiction, but the, you know, you, you, the character has to be developed. You have to understand the character. You have to understand what motivates them and, right. and, and why and what they're carrying around. So that was, I think, one factor was it wasn't, I didn't find it in its initial incarnation terribly effective at achieving my objective, which was, to, in effect, to, to make the case for things that have suddenly become controversial, like injecting our values into our foreign policy, embracing inclusivity and diversity and immigration, cooperating with other countries to achieve our national security, you know, these radical ideas uh, that, so, but, but if my goal was to, like a good journalist, was to show and not tell, I, the, the character who was showing, I thought, was was underdeveloped. And so, so in that sense, it required going back. Then, in terms of the, the boundary question, because I really am raw, I think that's the best word for it, and, and open and vulnerable, I think that was gradual. And it, I think, stemmed from the fact that young people I meet now, I, I see them wanting to try to get involved, and then what I call the bat cave, which is my head, like all the bats swimming around, doubts and anxiety and so forth, their bat caves go into overdrive and so many of them are tempted to pull back and just say, yeah, but what, 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 can, what can I do? What can one person do? And so, and I thought, I say to them, oh, I have the same feeling, you know, I have the, you know, everyone has that feeling, no matter, I mean, Senator- I would say, I would imagine virtually everyone in this room at times wonders, what, what can I individually What can any one person, right? your, your husband, you know, despite being, you know, an incredible senator representing this great state, probably has that feeling. Barack Obama had that feeling when he was president of the United States. The, the, the world's problems are really big, and that sense of smallness is part of the human condition. And, and so I realize if I could open up my insides, as you know, there's an expression in the book, never compare your insides to somebody else's outsides, then I could create much more identification, much more consolation and solace, and just say, you know, we all feel that way. Then let's get on with it. Uh, let's figure out what are the wh what are the small actions each of us can take that maybe, over time or aggregated or reaching some tipping point, can make a difference. And so, so I think being on a campus and encountering so many students who had kind of s suddenly were looking, I had used to be young on a campus, <laughs> and I used to be like my, you know, sort of in the, the same frame of mind as my students. Suddenly I went away and I got married and I had kids and I became a cabinet member, and I thought they don't identify anymore. And so in order to capture people at, at, at as best I can at every stage of their journey and not just when they're, you know, to write for fellow government officials, I thought to do the full sweep and to be as vulnerable and open as I as I could be, again, would be more powerful for, for in meeting them where they are, which is not where I ended up t titularly, if when you know what you I mean. When did you start writing this book? Um, the spring of, right, we left in on January 20th, 2017, not that I've been counting the days. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I didn't start really until the spring because I wanted to make sure I had, there was something. So the spring of 2017, and but I, I was in a hurry to get it out there in advance of 2020 and when people are thinking about whether to organize and to mobilize. So as my son, who's backstage, can attest, it was not an ordinary two-year writing process. I feel like I crammed a kind of my usual five years of writing but into a shorter period of time. Not just because of the short period of time, but because of when you started it. Do you think it became a different book because of, of that as well? The, I mean, 
we can say the 2016 election, and we're going to talk about it because yeah. you write about it in your book, um, in terms of what it was like th that night and then the, the day after when you met with all your staff. But I'm just, w I, as I was reading it, I remember telling Sherrod about a third of the way into it, wow, am I cheering her on, hmm. because now I know so much about your beginnings. And I mean, I've always liked you, mm -hmm. you know, we met back at the Robert F. Kennedy Awards in 03. But you are so um, honest about your father's alcoholism and the pain you felt I I around the circumstances of his death. I was stunned at first that you wrote about this. And then I was so grateful that you did, because mm. so many of us have had this in our lives with family members. Of course. When did you decide, to, and could you talk to the audience a little bit about that? Because it was formative mm. for you. You were young. You were, what, were you a freshman in high school? You uh, from Ireland? Yeah, 14, yeah. And you, I mean, it, it was a, I'm going to let you take over. Talk a little bit about, especially all the years that you, you blamed yourself for something that just broke my heart because right. it was not your fault. Right. Well, like, I mean, I, I, I th again, typical, I suppose, of, of young people, we, and now I see m even my kids doing it, and I try to stop them. But uh, you know, we we attach to ourselves more agency than we have. But th I mean, the essence of of what happened was that I, you know, again was uh, living in Dublin, Ireland. My father was an alcoholic. He was one who was incredibly present in my life. My mother wanted very much to be a medical doctor, and she is currently a kidney transplant doctor at Mount Sinai in New York uh, to this day, doing amazing work. But she had been deterred from doing science and certainly from doing medicine in Ireland, had gone off to London, had gotten her PhD in biochemistry, been a great athlete, uh, squash player, nat you know, one of the better squash players in England, and and one of the best in Ireland, and um, and but she still just wanted desperately to be a doctor. So when I was a kid, eventually after getting her PhD, she went back to medical school. So she was off, kind of studying and making up for lost time. My father was drinking, but was present. And so many of those early years, much of my many of my memories from my early years are with my dad in the pub, um, and my memories really, I mean, unti until I suppose quite recently, are quite stylized. I mean, I, when I went back into the pub uh, years later, sort of as a, as a full-fledged adult, um, I, was, I was a bit horrified that this was where I had spent so many countless hours. But it had a warmth and a glow, and it was where my dad was always just, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump away upstairs. And bringing me my Fanta or my replenishment of my mystery, w you know, my, my second mystery novel of the day if I'd blasted through one. And, and so, but my mother uh, wanted more opportunities, you know, in the, in the medical profession. Um, her uh, brother-in-law actually had come to Cleveland, uh, of all places, to, to himself, he was a heart surgeon, had come and, and practiced here for a few years. So she said, I'm gonna do the same. And uh, he helped set her up uh, to get a job in, in Pittsburgh. Um, and so she decided she wanted to come to advance, again, her medical passions, and, and but also to run away with an Irishman uh, who wasn't my father, uh, but who is still my stepfather to this day, uh, Edmund Burke, a, a fellow medical doctor from Dublin. So they effectively wanted to run away together and had jobs lined up in Pittsburgh and, but how do you get custody of, of two kids in a pretty patriarchal, conservative right. Catholic country? So she litigated it all the way up to the Irish Supreme Court, and because my dad didn't really have a source of income, he'd been a, a dentist, but he'd stopped working because he was drinking so much, she ended up gaining custody of us. And we came to this country, to Pittsburgh, 1979. Pirates were winning the World Series. I, within days of arriving, had like a wad of big league chew in my in my cheek, and I had a Terry Bradshaw Steelers jersey, and and could throw the baseball like Kent Tuckelby, and uh, was really embraced the all Americanness, thinking as children do, I suppose, that my dad would always be there. And we went back that first Christmas, and that's the moment Connie's talking about. Um, so the Christmas of 1979, we went back and. My dad basically said, I'm not gonna let you go back to America. I, I miss you too much, so I'm gonna keep you. And it was me and my younger brother who was four years younger. Um, and so he made clear to my mother that he was going to keep us. And on Christmas Eve, 1979, very late at night, my mother came to the door 
uh, you know, with a well-known Irish judge and basically called to me and said, come here. And my brother, of course, was younger. He went scurrying to his mother. I was in, it was like out of a movie, you know, between these two people that I adored. Impossible Impossible, impossible. Um, not parenting 101, definitely, <laughs> on either, on either uh, side. But for me, just, I, ultimately my mother was sterner and my dad probably, you know, in his heart of hearts knew that he actually wasn't capable of taking care of the two of us full time. So I went to my mother, we went to America. My mother said to him, look, now that you tried to keep them and violated the terms of the arrangement, and he was really threatening to kind of go off with us into the Irish countryside. Uh, she said, you come, you come to America, you come to Pittsburgh, you know, I'll even fly you to come. I mean, they need to see their father and he could never, as he would put it, I, you know, uh, when I get sorted, I'll get sorted and he could never get sorted. And then, as you say, in high school, when I was 14, suddenly I, I learned that he had died, which, which to me felt like an out of nowhere situation. But in fact, I would learn in the coming months that it had been a steady deterioration since since we left. And so yeah, I, I went over and over in my mind that moment, but beyond that, the years of, you know, deep down I was waiting for him to come to America to be with me or to call or you know anything and he you know have the number and call, but he'd have been drinking and then I would internalize my mother's sort of uh, view of him, you're drinking dad, you know, be very hard with him. Um, but so I'd been waiting, but then after he died, I developed this narrative in my mind about how he'd been waiting for us, you know, how he'd been waiting for me, and, and again, exaggerating as a teenager, early teens, what I would have been capable of doing. So um, suffice it to say that given uh, that I, I was carrying all of this around for many years, really until I did therapy, you know, in my 30s, um, which wasn't that long ago, um, but uh, it was pretty long ago, but not that long ago, <laughs> uh, but I... I um, Notwithstanding the fact that I began to mine some of the, and uh, you know, one of the through lines, as you know, Connie, from the book, is my experience with therapy, which was not always ideal, and and I was very skeptical and very hostile and very negligent. I was, so I would make these appointments with therapists, and then I would forget that I had a therapy. And I was so focused on my work, and I loved my work so much, and my personal life was a disaster. But I didn't really associate it with anything that from my past. It just seemed. Like, hadn't met the right guy. And um, and so I, uh, but there's one scene in the book, uh, which you may remember, w which was, looked like it was a turning point where I would forswear therapy for the rest of time, where I'm actually so negligent of my therapist and of going to the session and forgetting, and I'm paying for sessions that I'm not attending, and I'm making myself crazy. And so I forget another one, and then I call the therapist the last minute. I say, I'm too far. I forgot, but I'm in time, but I'm too far away to get to you. Can we do it on the phone? He says, fine. And I'm sort of talking about some of these issues and, you know, airing it out, but in a pretty defensive way and a protective way, especially of my mother and probably of myself and, and of my father. And But as I'm doing it, I hear in the background, beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, what's that noise? And then there's silence. And I have like the most straight-laced therapist at that time, like the nerdiest, you know, by the book kind of guy. And, and it's just the weird, I'm hearing this like weird beeping. So what is that silence? I said, are you at a fucking ATM? <laughs> silence. <laughs> so like I was such a bad therapy pupil that my therapist, my straight-laced by the book, never done anything, I'm convinced, never done anything like it in his life felt as if he could take these latitude and just like, might as well go get money while, <laughs> while on the phone with Sam. He like, was wrong. I'm just, I was really glad you swore in him. When I, I know, but I didn't name him in the book. Should I, I, I probably should have outed he him knows. more. He, he knows. He, I don't know if he's, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe. But, um, but anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying I had a lot to deal with later. Yeah. I just, I appreciated how, as I said, this is not your typical political memoir because you were so honest about it. Let's shift gears a little bit then, because this informs your life moving forward, which means it also informs your work. One of the threads through the book is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me you're saying this, that when you're elected as a leader, you're a leader regardless of how you lead, right? And which is one of the reasons you can become so dangerous, because you're setting an example, right? And, um, can we talk about, it almost sounds, I don't even think it's fair to say, can we compare 
the Obama administration to the Trump administration because that would be comparing Shakespeare to Bugs Bunny. But <laughs> the, I should not have said that. We are in peril, are we not? We are in crisis. And one of the things that I hear from people all the time, I'm sure you do as well, and I, it, it, we talk about this at home, are things so bad that it's gonna take decades, particularly when you talk about what's happened with our allies, people we were supposed to be with and the Paris, I mean, so much going on. Is it so bad it's going to take decades or is it so bad that if you can change the administration to what you admire in leaders, that some things, the ship can be righted in some ways fairly quickly. I, I would love to know your thoughts on that. Um, well, maybe maybe we'll you know fast forward a little bit to uh, or or take as the case study even the recent events uh, you know of just the last few days, and I'll use those uh, just to illustrate a few let's of do that. a few of the a few of the differences in leadership style, and then let's talk about recovery, the prospects for recovery. Um, so I think. So a, a theme of this administration has been, or of this president really, um, um, has been, you know, real dismissiveness uh, of our allies and of the importance of alliances. A kind of belief that, um, you know, on the one hand, a, a kind of yelling at our allies for being free riders, uh, but a fundamental belief that we can go it alone on level. And to the degree that there's a desire to have friends, a weird, and it's almost temperamental, I think, as much as it is, I mean, I don't think there's, it's certainly not strategic, but a weird gravitation towards some of the more abusive leaders. You know, more affection expressed for Kim Jong-un, you know, whose regime murdered an American, you know, in, in very young recent, man recent uh, young man from Ohio, exactly. Right. Um, more affection for Vladimir Putin and kind of joking about Putin's interference in the election and, more affection for Duterte in the Philippines, who you know uh, delights, it seems, in the civilian casualties in the drug war. I mean, just this list of of government, and so that kind of attraction. And I, this, we could go into the psychology of that attraction because it is a kind of, I, I think, it is a reflexive um, uh, taste for an autocratic personality. And so Erdogan, the Turkish president, of course, falls into that category. And the allies with whom we've worked to defeat ISIS, who didn't even get a vote, who didn't even know, who learned that we were withdrawing our forces from northern Syria, who themselves have special forces, some of whom were cohabitating with U.S. forces in northern Syria, found out about this, whatever it was, that Sunday night a week ago or whatever, when the, when the note from the White House went out, which had in it the green light that they say there was no green light, but it was actually in the, the press release that they put out before they realized what the backlash would be. Um, in any event, so this, the relationship between, with allies and with autocratic personalities is a dimension, I think, to this. There's also, in the president's leadership style uh, there and, and leadership approach, there is no process. So, yes, it's policy by tweet on one level, but it's also, very little due deliberation. And, you know, one of the things that, that people worried about in Obama because he was, can be criticized for being very professorial and very, on the one hand, on the other hand, was that he wouldn't be decisive. But you may disagree with his decisions. Um, was that a fair criticism? About the decisive, no, that's what's interesting is that I think, you could, you, I think it is a fair criticism to say sometimes people uh, in the face uh, of, of great, pain in their own lives or um, in, the, in the face of great fear uh, of, of things external to them need to see in their leader, you know, a little rage or a little more, a little, a little heat, a little emotion or like, I think that's fair that sometimes he could seem detached, I think, but he was totally decisive. I mean, absolutely. You never, you, you know, this was never one, you know, somebody who, because he was thoughtful you know, would would then end up agonizing to the point of narrow. I think I think by and large, I mean, I'm, at least I'm not thinking of an example where he would narrow his decision space. He recognized that you know this is why he was in the position was he was in that he had to he had to make the decisions. And you didn't always agree. I mean, Syria is an example. No, of that, and right? th that's was actually the point I was going to make on process was, you know, as you know, I have in addition to the personal stuff that we've talked about, I I try to bring the reader into the Situation Room. And sometimes it wasn't very pleasant because as his human rights 
advisor. I was the person often raising issues that were uncomfortable because maybe we were, you know, going to head in a certain direction that required some compromise with a regime that was unsavory, let's say, in fighting ISIS or something. Or on the question of drone strikes, there were often right. lively debates. I don't get into that quite as much in the book. But, um, and Obama would sometimes feel like I was being repetitive or that I was, um, you know, somehow sort of sitting in judgment of people who had decided to go in a different direction or who had a different life experience or different worldview. Or were or you sitting in judgment? I don't think so. I mean, in the sense that I, th I sit in judgment today. I'm fully capable of, of sitting in judgment. But, I mean, the, the kinds of debates we were having, I mean, you know, could I, I, could, I could disagree with where we landed on the red line in Syria, but could I disagree with someone, namely the president or our military, who believed um, that at that time, let's say 13 years into the war in Afghanistan, having just pulled our troops out of Iraq, um, you know, with a pre military presence in, you know, a quarter of the countries in the world involved in some kind of counterterrorism training. Could I, could I impugn the motives of someone who thinks that taking that risk in Syria, you know, could lead us down a slippery slope that is going to place another burden on one tiny sector of our society? I, I could, I, you know, and so, so I, I, at least I hope I was never, you, you could disagree and still believe all things considered, it'll even be better for that segment of our society and for our national security to stand up to Assad in a more robust way or to establish a no-fly zone so that refugees aren't fleeing into Turkey and then on into Europe. You could have that reasonable debate, but what I was starting to say just about Obama is that, you know, he would say to me, you're getting on my nerves, <laughs> you know, which is, the wor I mean, I have great respect for him and, and he wanted me there and I'd be like, oh gosh, and be in front of other people and, and then five minutes later, he'd be like, let's come back to the point Sam was making. It was almost like he'd have that instinct of, if I look like I'm silencing in some way, what's that going to do to the kind of team of rivals approach to debate? And in the Turkey decision, or in the Syria decision that Trump has just made, you see that impetuousness. You see John Bolton just lost his job uh, because he was disagreeing with Trump's approach with right. the idea of having a Camp David summit with the Taliban, you know, like within days of 9-11, of the 9-11 anniversary. Somehow he thought, John Bolton thought that was a bad idea. It was a bad idea. Um, but, but John Bolton lost his job over that and over concern that Trump wasn't standing up to Russia at a time when Russia was interfering in our, in our still interfering in our democratic process. And so in, in both in, you see process, substance, deference again for a particular personality type and then uh, a fundamental belief that you can afford to go it alone that getting out of the world is prag he believes i mean in his gut that there's exhaustion in the country which i think is right I in this country he believes though that we somehow uh, uh, to the degree that he thinks this far ahead um but but no that that you know, that you can check a box and check the national security box, defeat ISIS, that that's the end of the story. And it's so, uh, you know, if, there, if he would listen to anybody, and uh, they were the people who were putting the brakes on these last weeks because he's wanted to do this. You could just feel it's like Dr. Yeah. Strangelove. You know, right. he's just wanting, 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 and, and there, there are these impediments. And then finally, he has the conversation. He's like, all right, we're out of here. And you know our military does salute once the the commander in chief makes a decision of that nature, but it's just in terms of relationship with allies, relationship with autocrats, process and dissent and deliberation, uh, thinking through consequences, and this this belief that it's not it's not a point of ideology, it's just a pragmatic fact that our fates are connected in part to our ability to mobilize coalitions, our ability to mobilize coalitions to deal with threats to our people turn in part, in large part, on our credibility, <laughs> on whether we can be relied upon. When we rip up the Paris Agreement, rip up the Trans-Pacific Partnership, whatever you think about it, rip up the Iran nuclear deal, um, and rip up the accord we had with people who took more than 10,000 casualties defeating ISIS as our ground force, when we get to the recovery question, that's the hardest thing. There's, there's time lost on climate. 
there's the instability of ripping up the Iran deal and the danger that that cre creates in the here and now. But the hardest thing on the back end is credibility, is, is because, because Trump has happened once and this approach with these features, uh, uh, you know, again, the, I think what we will hear back as we seek to rebuild, you know, we'll, we'll seek to rebuild the things that have been ripped up, try to, you know, sit down at the table again with the Iranian government in some fashion to recoup something that will deny them a nuclear weapon, but will also, um, uh, you know, make them believe we're in it for the long haul this time. We will seek to make up for lost time on climate, maybe, if we can get some, you know, the, the Senate to go along somehow, or maybe do it at the state level. But so we will, we will seek on the substance to undo the damage. But How will it will that be. Go? How will that go? That'll be really hard in its own right, but I think nothing will be harder than restoring our credibility because the answer is going to be, but it happened once. Why should we believe that the agreement you seek to do now? Miss Power, or you know, President whomever, you know I that that agreement is going to stick. What's the answer? What would you advise? L let's put well, you in this. It, but let's yeah. say we have a new person who's about yeah. to become president. Um, what is your advice in that moment? How how to proceed? Well, a lot of it will are are, are the wind in our sails. And we will have some just by showing up, right? Because it will be, as you sort of alluded to in your question, it, there will be so much relief really and gratitude right. to have a fair process, to have processes again for other governments to know who to go to, that when you go to the Secretary of State, that's likely to be lined up with where the President is, because the Secretary, no, you know, there wouldn't be these sort of this disparate uh, set of perspectives. There would be a disparate set of perspectives in a room but when an outcome is agreed upon, then you can go to the you can go to any senior member of the administration and get a sense of where the administration is going. There wouldn't be this impetuousness. There will be again uh, a commitment to alliances and shared values. There will be a recognition, by the way, that the world has not stood still. That China is accelerating its activism beyond its borders, which maybe we right. can come back to. So, so among democracies, there'll be just like, it'll be you know yes, and so there'll be some wind in our sails. We will get more wind in our sails. If there is a substantial margin, and I'm not even saying, of course, that we can assume that a Democrat will win in November 2020, but the bigger the margin, the stronger our case that it isn't just this individual President Trump who was rejected, but it is these planks to his approach, Trumpism, you know, elements of Trumpism. Um, if the person who is elected can convincingly show that the the dynamics domestically that that gave rise to Trump's ascent, um, uh, namely, I, I think ascent by by a number of Obama voters in 2012, in 2016, sort of some of the Sherrod Brown voters um, who who might have voted for Trump but also voted for Sherrod, but right. who who f who have felt like the Democratic Party was not looking out for them, that that uh, they were getting left behind. Um, and maybe seen past or seen through. I think if a Democrat can, can speak convincingly to that 9% of Obama voters in 2012 who went to Trump in 2016 or the 7% of Obama voters in 2012 who stayed home in 2016, which is millions of votes together, um, but, but that will be part of our argument to international audiences as well, will be we've kind of, we, we, we've, we've cracked the code, we find, we've found a way to to, to build a, a, an enduring coalition on behalf of a set of values uh, that, that we, we seek to project in the world. And, and, and on behalf of a perspective around our interests um, that look like it was very vulnerable. So that'll be part of it. And then, you know, what I wish I could say, but unless uh, the Senate dynamics change or polarization changes in our country, I can't say really, but a pathway would be treaties rather than commitments, but you need 67 votes to get a treaty through the Senate. And so that, re and because over time, I mean, George Bush had a couple hundred treaties, George W. Bush had a couple hundred treaties not that long ago uh, that he his administration shepherded through the, the Senate. So it's not as if Republicans don't, haven't done that very recently, but for Trump, it's been nine treaties and on very small kind of technical trade and intellectual property kinds of issues. And it, when we were trying to get you know, innocuous treaties like the treaty on the, the the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. You know, Bob Dole is on the Senate floor championing that with John McCain and even some conservative senators like Barrasso from from uh, Wyoming. Um, you know, we w that was rejected out of hand because even just the idea of a treaty 
was parodyable by the kind of Tea Party wing of the party, as if that was like inviting the UN right. into people's homes and so forth. So that's a bit off limits. But maybe there'll be some, we, we will need to show other countries that Republicans can be brought along on behalf of different foreign policy objectives. Because it's our polarization as much as, again, the Trump phenomenon and the, and the n numerous blows to our credibility uh, that, that, that could hurt us in the, in the medium and the long term, it, it's also just a sense that we're going to have these wild foreign policy swings because Democrats and Republicans aren't finding that bipartisan right. space to agree on, a, on U.S. leadership. And that's where people like Lindsey Graham, I mean, uh, which, uh, which, uh, which, uh, who has surprised and disappointed in untold uh, ways, I mean, I who worked very closely with him, he's a big sustainer of our international affairs budget and our, our international development budget and our foreign assistance and the Magnitsky Act, which, which sanctions human rights abusers, but has just, um, you know, towed the line. And, but getting, somehow finding a way on the back end of the election to present, it won't be a united front, we know, but a more united front on key foreign policy questions. Without that, I think, you know, countries are really going to be on their heels very, very skeptical. The last thing I'll say, which is more positive, is Trump has, as we know, and is in the news this week, completely hollowed out our diplomatic corps, um, not by firing people, but just by excluding them, by insulting them, by not valuing their, their expertise. There will be an opportunity to revamp uh, our, our up, uh, right? to build it but up and to build it differently. Yeah, uh, that too, unfortunately, is going to take the cooperation of Congress because there are a number of regulations that'll make speed in that regard and um, accessibility for people who aren't career diplomats. Who I'd love to find a way, you know, to attract to being part of our diplomatic corps. Because as a, you know, as someone who isn't a career diplomat, I know that there are skills out there that would make people really effective ambassadors, and I don't mean just ambassadors, capital A, but f you know, diplomats and foreign servants and people who bring economic expertise to our trade conversations, for example. But there are such steep walls right now, such barriers to entry that those would need to come down as well. But there, but there will be uh, an opportunity, I think, on the, on, the, on the backside again. This is all presuming it's only four years of this kind of foreign policy rather than eight. Right, well, okay, no. Um, <laughs> Let's open it up to questions from the audience now. We've we got about, about a half hour we're going to do of those. And there are two microphones, so if you wouldn't mind, please, don't be shy about it. You'll, there are, it am I correct there's one on each side? Or is there only one? There are two? There's one over there, too? Okay. And please keep in mind, I'm asking for questions, not speeches, which I know you all know because you're familiar with city club rules. Oh, good, now we can see all of you. Hello up there. Uh, hello, my, my name is Bob Iller. Uh, <clears throat> I was originally gonna ask you, so what causes genocide? And then I realized it was a stupid question that would uh, take a very long time to answer and it could be vague. But <laughs> I have a specific question. What's happening in Syria? Is it a land grab, ethnic cleansing, or genocide? Okay, um, it's, uh, you know, the, uh, it, the, are you talking specifically about the Turkish invasion or, yes, yes. or the Assad regime's actions? The, okay. The Turkish invasion. So, um, I, I think in President Erdogan's own mind, which is a very scary place to inhabit, um, uh, he, and this is true of pretty much anyone who invades anybody else's country, they tell themselves a story about a kind of preemptive self-defense. I mean, even Hitler told that story of Lebensraum and, and of the threat posed by neighboring Poland. You know, I mean, these implausible stories. Uh, but nonetheless, that is, that is, in Erdogan's case, there is um, something that he can point to, which is that the Syrian defense forces who were the Obama administration and the Trump administration's, and above all our military's, ground force in defeating ISIS and in ending the caliphate in Syria, uh, elements of the Syrian defense forces were loyal, or indeed were even members of the PKK, which was a terrorist movement that caused uh, great harm and civilian casualties of all kinds inside Turkey, and that I think 
Turk successive Turkish governments had gone to great lengths to neutralize, but many of them had then found refuge in Syria well before the, the Arab Spring and so forth. So, so Erdogan sees every Syrian defense force fighter as PKK. He sees even Kurds within Turkey who have no affiliation uh, as potential PKK and thus has been incredibly brutal uh, against uh, Kurds in Turkey itself well before he went into Syria to, to continue the job. I think, you know, he was very transparent about what he intended to do. He, at the UN General Assembly this year, held up a map which showed the territory that he believed needed to constitute a kind of buffer. Um, he, again, would rationalize it on the grounds of, you know, got to get the, right now I see a threat in territory that's abutting my country. That threat is, he would call them PKK. I think he doesn't, I'm not even sure he refers to them as, uh, as they refer to themselves. And so, again, he thinks he's going to neutralize a uh, security threat. The fact that, you know, hundreds of thousands of civilians are living in those towns alongside the fighters who defeated ISIS is of no, it seems of no consequence to him. I don't think he cares about them. Again, I think he, there's a kind of collective guilt ascription that he has made to that territory. So it's a national security rationalization, uh, ethnic cleansing tactics with an eye to creating a territorial buffer. But now that the Syrian Kurds have partnered with Assad's regime, and by implication Russia and Iran, um, it's not at all clear where that's going to end. Um, you know, Assad, Assad's forces had not been up in that area really since the beginning of the Arab Spring in 2011, since the beginning of the peaceful protests in Syria, that territory has been, you know, I, it certainly wasn't wasn't peaceful when, when ISIS was in the area, um, but it has had waves of relative stability uh, as it's been in Syrian Kurdish hands or at one point in Syrian opposition hands. And so what's about to happen uh, as these two um, as sort of an, I guess, what's the expression, uh, movable force meets an immovable object alongside then the Kurds, you know, sort of stuck in the middle. Um, it's not at all clear what, what the next phase of it is beyond, beyond Erdogan's uh, calculus. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much for coming tonight. Um, so I worked for progressive policymakers in D.C. for a few years before coming back to Cleveland for law school. And something that I've struggled with is how to kind of keep that idealism when maybe a profession that you have or just life around you kind of forces you to be more pragmatic. Um, and you've had a life in which you've had to balance those things. I'd just like to hear you speak a little bit more about I that. I do recommend you read her book because it is so on point there. Answered. Thank you, Connie. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> I have Connie answer every question uh, in that manner before we... Uh, no, I mean, I guess on one level, and I know this is a little bit uh, cheap, but I kind of reject the premise a little bit of idealism and pragmatism being at such cross purposes. The reason I think it's a little cheap to say that is in one's life, you know, in terms of making money for one's family, and you know, there, sometimes true idealism would take you to be a full-time uh, you know, joining the, the the teenagers to be a full-time climate change protester, right? Rather than earning a living, and I mean, so so of course there 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 are tensions within. But one of the things that I do try to do in the book is to show the in in my little world the extent to which human rights and humanitarian quote values or or ideals are often juxtaposed with our national security interests, and yet in so many instances, it is our neglect of human rights that leads, not our, either ours or uh, a country that we are supporting, that leads to a level of instability that en ends up implicating us and harming us fundamentally. And the best example of this is the Iraqi government after um, you know, the, the surge and, the, and finally the, the country getting a grip on, um, on its own sort of fate and, and, you know, after the occupation and, and looking like it was sort of muddling through in very violent ways initially, but to actually being able to have 
a democracy and people voting and so forth. But the governments that came in successively were incredibly abusive to uh, you know, the minorities that had been in charge of the country for so long and with debathification, disqualifying people from jobs, rounding people up, no fair trial, this and the other. And those abuses end up ended up radicalizing a large number of people, which gave rise to ISIS, et cetera. And it's just one example. There's so many, and there's so many studies that show, particularly as it relates to extremism and terrorism, the centrality of human rights, and yet the temptation, again, is often to say, well, human rights are over here, but we got to fight terrorism. It's like, well, wait, actually, can we, can we look at whether the Egyptian government is a net uh, creator of radicalization or a net ally in combating radicalization. And so that's that's my world, it's not necessarily. You, to build on what she yeah. asked though, because it's very personal at this point, am I correct? You're sitting in law school classes mm -hmm. and, you're, and it's a very different experience than being involved in a progressive organization and you're trying to reconcile the two at times, right? Right. And yeah. so yeah. Th this big example is really good, but you also had that internal struggle, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So I guess, I think it's a lot of it has to do with a kind of, uh, and I'm not saying I always have this, as you'll see from the book, but a kind of discipline of one's sort of emotions and a kind of and a clarity about where one wants to get, or a clarity about even the modesty of what one can do in a given phase of life. And so, so, and that's really hard, right? Because it's, again, this feeling of, of, especially if you're a student, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just a student, and out in the world there are these things, and they're, you know, kids are getting separated from their parents, and, you know, this month is the hottest month compared to the last hottest month, which was the previous month, and, and it's just, it, but to, to try in whatever phase you're in to find that thing, I mean, even if it's about working in a law school clinic, but then go and work at a corporate law firm, no problem. You got to pay your law school debts back. Like people get that, but as long as you're clear that, and can remain clear that that you get a sense of meaning and purpose out of doing something for someone. And again, I would, you know, I don't know what your progressive causes are, but when my students say, uh, you know, I'll say, what do you want to do when you leave the Kennedy School or or when you leave, uh, if I'm visiting a campus, you know, when you leave this college, say, I want to promote human rights. And I'll say, whose, mm. whose, where, mm. how, what do you, you know, in other words, so narrow, I also think narrowing, I have an expression in the book that I borrow from these amazing um, social psychologists, social scientists, the Heath brothers who wrote a book called Switch, and the expression is shrink the change. You know, like I was dealing, again, this is too big an issue for your, your particular circumstances, but I was dealing with confronting a human rights recession. We're in the middle of a human rights re recession that predated Trump. 13 straight years of freedom in decline around the world, and I'm sitting in the cabinet of the President of the United States, like, oh my God, w we have to find a way to do something about the human rights recession, but what do you do about a recession that's kind of sweeping the planet in certain respects? And so we did this modest thing, which was to launch a, a campaign to try to secure the release of female political prisoners, and it was called Hashtag Free the 20, and even then, by the way, I didn't even think that we would necessarily contribute to securing their release, but I thought we'd make their governments feel bad, we'd make their families feel better, maybe they'd learn that we were standing up for them from far away. In the end, combined with the advocacy of lawyers and family members of the prisoners, we got 16 out of, of the 20 women freed from Uzbekistan, Ethiopia, China, different places, because the pressure uh, made a difference. And two more after you left, right? And exactly, and, 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 but that, you know that was is very small next to the big problem, and so f but but it was a definable goal. It was something to get up to do in the morning, even as I was feeling completely powerless and ineffective on Syria. It was something tangible. And so I think to find what is that tangible, even modest thing that you can do, and and then if there's a positive, and even if it isn't working, to feel the solidarity that you will feel with those you are working with who share those objectives. That's a that can be a very uh, there can be great consolation and motivation in that in that as well. Thank you for that question. Thank Let's you. go over here. I'm Sean Brennan. I'm president of Parma City Council. Welcome to Parma and welcome uh, everybody that's here this evening. Um, besides being uh, a member of council, I'm also a teacher during the day uh, in a local high school. And uh, my students are very concerned about the increasing polarization around the world as, as hopefully everybody in here is. So my question to you is, 
What do you attribute it to, and what's your advice to the next administration to make inroads, not only in our nation, but around the world uh, with regard to that issue? And the issue is polarization. I want to make sure Increasing I heard you go. Polarization. polarization, yeah. Um, I mean, the, that's a, a little bit like the causes of genocide, not, not that polarization is genocide, but in the sense that it's, it's a very broad issue. But I think uh, a major uh, set of factors are the now absence of umpires and referees in our media environment and the fact that we are all able to self-select around our pre-existing preferences and biases, I suppose. Um, so the fact that you can kind of select out of your life contrary views, we, you know, each of us, even your students, may start with some instinct or they might have their parents' politics. And so maybe they start and that's what they start reading and then they get affir affirmed in that set of views and the other side is made to look um, you know, in one's echo chamber, perha <coughs> perhaps, um, you know, uh, unseemly or, or motivated by the wrong things. I will say that I, I blanch a little bit, even at what I just said, at the, the sort of both sides dimension of what I've said, because I do think even though MSNBC is very political and, and very clearly uh, not supportive of this president, by and large, they, the New York Times, which, which is, I still think, the paper of record, they do corrections when they make mistakes. <laughs> and I haven't seen a Fox News correction, you know, in, in recent memory, which I really think is, is an important difference. So even as I believe it happens on both sides, the, the echo chamber effects are clearly happening on both sides. There's a fact-free dimension to one of the echo chambers, and, 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 and it peddles conspiracy theories and, and you know, even principles that I think are very antithetical to what our democracy in both parties has stood for for a long time. But anyway, echo chambers and that media, the umpire free, there's no Walter Cronkite telling you how you should think about the Vietnam War, who you trust, and who has, would have trust on both sides of the other. Very few of those Can individuals. Can I push back on that just yeah, a little bit? Please. Because I'm, I'm a bit older than you, I'm 62, and I, if I look back at that time, I see no women and no people of color deciding what news we should that's true. In here, right? So there's yeah. that side of it too. And you know I'm a journalist, so I'm going to push yeah. back on that a little no, bit. No, no, no. I think that's true. I, I think you're right what you're talking about, yeah. but I don't think it was as ideal as we Oh, I, sorry. I don't mean to make it ideal. The gatekeepers brought their own uh, biases and. Uh, I know and, you know and, that. I just yeah. want to. No, 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 no. I think it's, it's very important, but I do think it's the Wild Wild West right now. Yes. And, and you know, I even, s I don't say this in the book, but, you know, my. This young woman who just asked the question earlier uh, in law school, you know, is way ahead of where I would have been at her age in terms of my. I wasn't interested in human rights or politics or anything like. That. I wouldn't have. My parents wouldn't have known what their politics were or anything like that. I wasn't that engaged in my community, but I had a, a couple serendipitous encounters through the media with things that I never would have put in my search engine if that was the way I uh, received media back in the day. You know, I happened to be. T I was taking notes on a at a sports department at a TV station in Atlanta and the footage from Tiananmen Square in China where kids were being mowed down by tanks came down on the on the CBS feed next to where I was taking notes on the Braves-Giants game. So that was like boom. And then later with Bosnia, it was opening up the New York Times looking for something else and then seeing concentration camps again in Europe. So the absence of an ability to, to run into inconvenient fat. I would never put today, hey, I want to search concentration camp. I mean, who wants to read about concentration right. camp? Really so point. you can, you can you, it's harder to bump into inconvenient opinion, alternative viewpoints, and facts. But the other thing I'd say, and here's where I'm just uh, so saddened uh, by what the Supreme Court has done so recently, is that gerrymandering in our state legislatures is also a huge factor. It's and huge and here in Ohio, is I think it's huge know. here, yeah. but it's not it's not just huge here. No and way. and the idea that state legislatures, st state legislators, think that they get to choose their voters rather than their voters getting to choose them, uh, and that members of Congress feel the same way and are in cahoots with state legislators, and that the Supreme Court has embraced frontally political gerrymandering um, and just said, no, but you just can't do racial, but if you just call your racial gerrymandering, political gerrymandering, no problem, which is exactly what, no, this is it actually, I'm not, this, I know it sounds like, like political diatribe 101, it is actually <laughs> what the Supreme Court opinion says. 
uh, you know, just don't do it this way, do it this other way. And so you have people all around the country just uh, explicitly doing it, and Democrats do it too. Um, and, and, you know, happen not to have the power perhaps to do it as much, but if we could, if we could do away with that and now be up to state courts, state legislators, voters who make this a voting issue as to asking their representatives, does this matter to you? How are you gonna work to ensure that our maps are, are not selecting around uh, you know, uh, political outcomes, um, it then all the incentives right now are to the extremes, which is, which is and, and disincentivizing compromise in Washington, because you don't get rewarded by the extremes when you uh, do a purple deal, right, where red and blue come together. Um, so that's another factor, and again, it's not as if there isn't, there aren't pathways to fixing that despite the Supreme Court's terrible decision, but, but they now have really come back to the states, um, to state judges, to state commissions, and to state legislatures. Do we have time for one more, or no? We, we, we're out of time. Oh, okay, well, that's too bad. Well, we're out of time. <laughs> Can we have another round of applause? Oh, no, thank you, thank you, Connie, thank you. And a special thank you to our thank friend you. Connie Schultz for joining us tonight. And with that, this forum is adjourned. <laughs>